right, good morning. So pleased with that greeting every week. It just encourages me. And being here is always encouraging to me and to my family. I'm glad I announced this morning at class that we'll be able to be here two times a month. Beginning next month, we're going to be here the first two Sundays of July and of August. And that we've also secured Austin Fowler, who is a co-worker of mine at House to House. Great young man. Very passionate about evangelism and, and uh, the Lord. Uh, he's not married yet. I keep trying to get him get him hitched, but so far it hasn't hasn't worked out. But I'm sure uh, he's a good catch for somebody. I tell you that he's a good uh, a good good young man, and I think uh, you will enjoy uh, him speaking here as well. And I know that you will uh, give him the the type of welcome that you've given me and my family. We've loved being here every Sunday. Wish we could continue. Uh, forever. We really enjoy it, but we're glad that we get to be here two times a month uh, starting in July. Today I want to talk to you about God is my strong refuge, and you can turn to uh, 2 Samuel 22, verses. we'll start in verses 33 today, but we'll be heavily in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 22 today as we go through our lesson. And in verse 33, uh, and I'm going to read this out of the English Standard because I like the way it translates this verse. It says, this God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. And that's where we're taking the title from today. God is my strong refuge. David wrote this song. Uh, the song is, is the whole, almost the entire chapter of 2 Samuel chapter 22. Now what's interesting about this particular song of David is that it is repeated almost word for word in Psalm 18. It's almost as if he worked on this song uh, multiple times and, and reworked it, and that here in Second Samuel 22, he's near the end of his life. In fact, the the very next chapter records the last words of David, and he's writing this at a time when he is able to look back at how God had worked in his life throughout his entire life to shape him, to mold him to protect him, to punish him, and to deliver him to be the person that he was at the end of his life. And he says right there that he's made my way blameless. He's been able to wipe out David's sins. Now, I can relate to a lot of people in the Bible. I think about Peter in the New Testament. I can relate to Peter. He's a little impulsive. He says the first thing that comes to his mind, sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's not such a good thing. Sometimes Peter had moments uh, where he said the wrong thing and sticks his foot in his mouth. So I can relate uh, to Peter on that account. I can also relate to Paul a lot. I love studying the Apostle Paul. Of course, he, he made this huge change from someone who was persecuting Christ to someone who was a servant 
of Christ. Uh, I, I love studying about Paul and reading. You know, I, I get the sense that Paul was probably a little bit arrogant at times, and so he had this thorn in the flesh to help humble him. Uh, and we see God shaping him and, and molding him as he goes throughout his life. I can relate to Paul, but I can very much relate to David. And there's a lot about David in the Bible. In fact, we get his entire life story, essentially, in, in the Bible, sometimes parts of it multiple times. So there's a lot about David, but what I find interesting is that really almost more than anybody else in the Bible except for Jesus, there's a lot of David in the Bible, in the sense that he's not just writing, as Paul does, writing these letters to churches, and, and Paul is sometimes pouring out his heart, but David is pouring out his heart to God in a very personal way through these songs. And I can relate to him because no matter what David was going through, he's turning to God and he's sometimes asking God's questions. Sometimes he's, he's saying, I was wrong and, and I'm coming back to God. We get that personal interaction between him and God. It's a very beautiful thing. He's, he's really put his heart out there on display. And here, throughout chapter 22, he's talking about God is his strong refuge. And when you think of, of refuge, what do you think about? You think of a place of protection from something, right? You're struggling and you need a protection from something. Sometimes that could be a very narrow place. You just need a place to hide that's safe and protected. One time I was caught in a canyon. Uh, we were hiking and, and there was a storm, right? Just, just terrible rain. And I, I sought refuge in a cave while that storm was going on. Turned out to not be a very safe refuge because across the way I could see the other side of the canyon and in this just torrential rain that whole side of the cliff on the other side collapsed and there was a cave right over there like the one I was sitting in uh, it made me say you know what maybe this isn't such a safe place and I went back out into the storm but we think of refuge as a place where you're protected maybe it's a small place a hidden place uh, it could be a lot of different things that you're being protected from in the storms of life. And there could be a lot of different ways that God can be our strong refuge. And today we're going to look at the place, the position of that refuge, and then we're going to make it personal as well. But first I want to start by talking about the place of refuge, as David puts it in 2 Samuel 22. As David talks about this place of refuge, what kind of images does he use and what does he stir up? And the first thing I want us to notice is that it is a large place. Look at verse 2. It says, and he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Verse 3, he is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower, my refuge, my savior. Verse 19, he says, uh, 
but the Lord was my stay. He was my support. He, he held me up. Verse 29, he says, Thou art my lamp. He is lighting the way for him. He is showing him uh, the images that would otherwise be in darkness, and, and he's able to see his enemies. Verse 31, he says, He's a buckler to all them that trust in him. A buckler is a small shield that could be used to help you push away an attack while you're preparing for another attack. It was a small shield that could very quickly move and protect you. Verse 33, he says, God is my strength and power. But back up to verse 20, he says, He brought me forth also into a large place. This is not a a confined crevice. It's, It's like... When he fills up our cup of blessing, he says what? He says he fills it to overflowing. God gives us blessings that are overflowing. And that's the case when he provides a a place of refuge for us. It's not some small hidden place where we're hidden from the world and we're protected in a small crevice of the rock. No, it's a, a large place. More than that, look at verse 34. He says, and he sent me upon my high places. This is not a hidden place. This is a a high place that's large, and he's able to see all the way around him. Nobody's going to sneak up on him. Nobody's going to be able to surprise him and attack him. He hasn't allowed his enemies to take the high ground. And in verse 51, he says he is the tower of of salvation for his king. He has provided him a place of protection on top of that high place. I was uh, fortunate enough a few years ago to go with, with my mom to the land of Israel, and we got to tour all of that. It was absolutely amazing. Uh, uh, many lessons that I will never forget. It was, it was a wonderful thing. But one of the places we got to visit was Masada. And this place is impressive. Now, it's not found in the Bible. They don't talk about Masada in the Bible. But I want to tell you the story of Masada and how amazing this this place is. First, its position is out in the middle of the desert. There is no water anywhere around it except for the Dead Sea. It's really almost an otherworldly place. It feels, as you're traveling there, almost like you're in an alien world. There's no plants, there's no animals, because there's no water except for this dead sea water that's, that's so salty that nothing can live in it. It's just dead everywhere. It's a strange place to build a fortress, but Herod the Great actually built it there as a place where if they revolted against him, he could flee there and be in an impregnable fortress, a place that could not be attacked. And when he did that, he, he set up a chain of events that led Israel to some of their great points of pride. In fact, the story that I'm about to tell you is, is a point of pride for the military still today, and they have... As they graduate and as they start to finish their military training, one of the things that the elite soldiers do is they go 
to this place and they climb up what's called the goat path with all their gear on. And when they get up to the top of that, they celebrate and they're very happy. It's like a, a rite of passage for them. When we got up there, I didn't climb up the goat path. I took the little air-conditioned cart that rides to the top. But when we got up there, these these men had just climbed the goat path with all their gear on. And I asked if I could take their picture while they were celebrating. And they said, sure. Another thing that makes this place interesting is that while there is no water anywhere around it, there's plenty of water in that fortress. Because it was engineered in such a way that underground, there's as it rains many miles away up in the mountains, there are channels that were built to feed all the water into a cistern. And inside this giant cistern, was enough water for an entire army for a long, long time. And it would be impossible for anyone to get to it, poison it, or or make it unusable in some way. It is an impregnable fortress with lots of supplies and tons of water, while your enemy has no water whatsoever. You would be crazy to try to attack this place. And the only ones to ever do it were the Romans. The Romans were relentless. There were 960 men that upon the fall of Jerusalem, when Rome was fighting Israel, these men took, some of them took their families and they fled to this place. They were radicals. They were rebels. They attacked a Roman uh, group of soldiers and massacred all of them on the way to Masada. They got to Masada, this impregnable fortress, and they thought they could just hold up there and they would be safe. Rome doesn't take it too kindly when you attack them, and they sent an entire legion to fight them at Masada. You can still see today the encampments all the way around. So from the top, you can look down, and there, there's a wall that they built. That's the first thing the Romans did. They got there, they built a wall around the entire place. They set up watchtowers every hundred feet along this wall. They set up camps all the way around. Now remember, there's no water. The closest water is 22 miles away, the River Jordan. They had thousands of soldiers and thousands of slaves Jewish slaves there that needed water every day. This is the lowest place on earth. It gets to be 115 degrees there. Not a place you want to be without water. So they set up a chain to go from the Jordan River and deliver water just all day. And they they decided to lay siege to this place. Meanwhile, the Jews who were up on top of Masada were throwing water up in the air and were making fun of them down there, saying, you'll never... Get us in here. It's impossible for you to get in here. Well, the Romans decided they would build a ramp up to the gate at the top. And to do that, they used Jewish slaves. And the men who were Jewish radicals refused to kill their brethren. So they just let them build this ramp over the course of about six to eight weeks, people think is about how long it took. And they just watched up there, helpless. They could have killed them. They could have prevented them from building the ramp, but they let them just build this ramp up to it. 
when they saw that they were about done, they were going to break through on the next day, they committed mass suicide inside Masada. And we know about some of it because there were a few survivors of the families that they hid. They hoped that when the Romans broke in and they saw that everybody was dead, that they would leave. But the Romans hung out for a while and they caught all the people and they interrogated them as to what had happened. But here's the point I want to make. God provides a fortress like that for us. It can be in a desert place with no water anywhere around, but we're up on a large, high place that's impregnable, that has lots of supplies. God provides everything that we need. And the only way our enemy is going to get in and defeat us is if we let them in, if we let Satan in. God provides that kind of refuge for us. I want to talk now about the position of that refuge. The position that God has placed it in. It's not in a place that's hard to get to. And the example that I'm going to use are the cities of refuge, which are found in Numbers 35, 9 through 15. As I read these verses, I just want you to think about God setting this system up. He says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you give shall be your six cities of refuge, for you shall have three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. So I want you to picture this. You have accidentally killed somebody at work. You are now the manslayer. And that person's relative is within their rights under the old law to track you down and kill you. Even though it was an accident. Right? They don't know it was an accident. You could have intentionally done it. You now have to drop everything that you're doing leave everything behind and flee to a city of refuge, which God has set up. But first, I want you to think about this. When is God setting this up? He's telling Moses that when you conquer the land of Canaan, I want you to set these up. Before they even take the land, God has the forethought to build these cities of refuge. You're going to provide a place where people can flee to if they're in that position. It reminds me of the church, which God, before the foundation of the world, planned as the vehicle of salvation for his people. For those of us who are in the manslayer's position, those of us who have sinned, we have absolutely no hope. We have to flee to that refuge that can only be found in Christ. We look at Ephesians 1.4. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9. God gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 1 Peter 1.19.20. For he was foreknown before the foundation 
of the world. God knew that if he set us up with the choice to sin, that we would choose sin sometimes. And when we did, he, through foreknowledge, set up Jesus as our way of reuniting with him. Think about the unhappy state of the manslayer, right? It's one who accidentally killed somebody. In this case, he has to leave everything and flee and get to that city of refuge or face the avenger who can legally kill him. In this situation, although he may be innocent, he can't do anything to fix it, right? It's an utterly hopeless situation. Sin is often like that. There's nothing we can do to fix some sins, right? And killing someone is certainly like that. There's no way to bring that person back. You can't give a ransom for it. You can't, even if you own the whole world, repay somebody for the loss of their loved one. And it's the same for the sinner, which we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is a hopeless situation. Paul lays that out beautifully in Romans, which we're, we're studying, right? And I just love it. It's, it's fantastic where he starts out with the bad news, as I call it. We're about to get that to that in, in Bible class. It's the idea of you're going to have bad news and good news. And the bad news is everybody has sinned and fallen short and there's nothing you can do to fix it. That's the bad news. And then Paul comes in with the good news. But thank God for providing us Jesus, for providing us a way. He even makes it personal in Romans chapter 7. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. And then he says, thank God for providing Jesus. And then he gets to that pinnacle, that top in Romans chapter 8, where he says, you know, what can separate us from the love of God? He has given us his, his son, Who's going to separate us? There's only one who will separate us, and that's us, our choice. We're the one who will let Satan in and let him into our place of refuge. I also want you to think about uh, the accessibility of that refuge. Everything was set up by God to facilitate the flight of the manslayer, that he might reach the city before being overtaken by by the manslayer, or by the uh, avenger. There are six cities, three on each side of the Jordan, one at the north, one in the middle, and one in the south. No matter where he was in Israel, the manslayer could reach one of these cities within half a day's journey by foot. But of course, Jesus is even nearer. He is a present help in time of need. And these cities were all high on elevated ground so as to be conspicuous, just like Jesus is conspicuous. He's in the Old Testament, he's in the law, he's in the prophets, he's in the songs, and of course he's in the New Testament. He is not difficult to find, he is not hidden away. The roads leading to these cities, according to the rabbinic literature, they were about 50 feet wide. They were inspected every year and repaired at public expense in the spring. Any bridges over streams were repaired and signposts were erected at every crossroads with an arrow saying refuge this way. The same is true 
for Jesus. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then finally, I want you to note that the cities were open to the stranger as well as to the Jew. Just as Christ is not for the Jews only, but also for us, for the Gentiles, it's Romans 9.24, Galatians 3.27 and following says, As many of you have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus is open to all, just as the cities of refuge were open to all. There's an openness to Christ. All can come to him. Once you reach that city, you were then protected, secure from the avenger. And you, in the same way as a sinner, want to take away that power of the avenger, Satan, right? Who can justly accuse us of sin on the day of judgment when we stand there he can not he's the father of lies but he doesn't have to lie then all he'll have to do is tell the truth he'll have to say that luke griffin guy you can't let him into heaven he did all these things and he'll be telling the truth and i won't be worthy to go to heaven but i'll have jesus on my side because i've been baptized into christ jesus will both be judge and my lawyer, he will stand with me, and he will stand with you, or if you, if you are in Christ. Finally, I want to make this personal. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Psalm 46 and verse 1. I want this lesson to be uh, personal personal and applicable to you. I don't want to just say God is a refuge, turn to him. I want, want you to understand the application of this lesson in your life and use it to change your world, how you think and feel each day and how you approach difficult situations for yourself and for others. Because this book will tell you how to be saved. I believe that the Bible teaches us how to be saved, don't you? God revealed his plan to us. But I'm convinced that that's not what most of the Bible is about. I think that that it teaches us how to be saved, and then it teaches us about the saved, about how we're to be righteous, how we're to live a righteous life for God, how we're to be a servant for him. It's a book of encouragement. It's a book written to instruct. The Old Testament is our, our schoolmaster. The New Testament builds us up, encourages us. Most of the New Testament is about not falling away. And I'm going to tell you a couple of personal things about my family. I'm not going to take a long time to do this. I'm not going to go way into the depths of it. But I want you to understand something that happened to our family so that you can make application. Because I know many of you have had difficult and painful things happen in your family. You've met my oldest daughter, Iris. She's, she's visited several times. You know Katie, my youngest daughter. We have a middle daughter as well. Faith is her name, somewhat ironically. And when she was 14, uh, she ran away. And it was very difficult. The police found her, uh, returned her. And, and we did what 
parents do. We tried to help her in every way that we could. We did everything that we knew to do, and we did things that we didn't know to do, that we learned how to do. We tried our best uh, to help her. And at one point, when she was about 16 and a half, 17, it, it seemed like things got better. But it turned out that she was just pretending. And on her 18th birthday, after we had had a party for her the day before, it was a Sunday. I was teaching a Bible class. Christy was also teaching Bible class. And she got a call from Iris. We had let her live with my oldest daughter in Georgia. She was planning to, to be uh, go into police academy when she turned 18. And you couldn't do that in Alabama. You could in, in Georgia. So we let her live with Iris. Um, Anyway, we got a call, and Iris said, she's gone. She left a note, and she said, don't try to find her, don't try to follow her. She went to the police and told them that she's 18, and that there's nothing we can do about it, and she's leaving. She left with a group of people, and she was just gone. And for a long time, we didn't know where she was. We eventually got uh, contacted by the people that she was with. They were uh, kicking her out, and they wanted us to come get her and save her, which we did. And uh, she is now in Kansas, uh, where we helped get her set up. And she's doing some better in a worldly sense, but she doesn't believe in God, and she's, um, she is in contact with us now. But all of that was really very painful, as you might imagine. And I'm sure you've had things that were very painful in your life as well. The reason I share that with you is because of this verse in Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble, right? And Psalm 62.8, trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. The very next thing we did, we went to polish in the pulpit, which I help run, and usually it's not a very encouraging time for me. It's a time of hard work for me. But that polish in the pulpit was very special because so many people surrounded us with love and met with us, and people who had gone through similar things met with us and talked to me and Christy and tried to help us work through it. What we found is that Romans twelve fifteen, where you rejoice with those that rejoice, but you weep with those that weep. How is God, how is Jesus a refuge for us, a present help in time of trouble? Well, certainly the Bible, certainly David went through things like this with Absalom and he wrote his, his feelings down about similar things that I was going through, that Christy was going through. Certainly through prayer, Right? but also through our brothers and sisters who are there to surround us and to weep with us as we were weeping, to be there with us. We are God's agents on earth, and he uses us to enact his policies. And one of his policies is comfort and refuge. You can find comfort and refuge with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing that people can be there for you and help prop you up. They can be a shield 
for you because they're Christians and they're serving as Christ. At that time, I cried until I couldn't cry anymore. At that time, I poured out my heart to God in prayer. And there were these people that helped me and that were there for me. And I want you to know today that if you are struggling, if you have had things in your life that have pushed you away, and you've let Satan get into the gate, you've let him into your place of refuge, there is a remedy for it. There is hope and love and comfort and understanding in Christ. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. You do not have to be in that kind of pain. I'm not saying it will fix everything. It won't. You'll still feel pain. But you'll feel pain together with your brothers and sisters, and people will support you and be there for you. If you've never obeyed the gospel, then you were not in that place of refuge. You haven't been able to flee to the city of refuge. You're not safe from the avenger. And I would encourage you to obey the gospel and be baptized into Christ where you can find that relief and that safety. If you have done that, but you've let the avenger in, you've let Satan invade your life and bring you down and let sin come back into your life, and you no longer are walking in the light, we would encourage you to turn around, to turn away from that, to repent after confessing that sin. And we will pray with you and for you. We'll be there to rejoice with you. We'll be there to cry with you. If either of those is the case for you, please make it right this morning as we stand and as we sing.